This is part one of the Outdoor Adventures podcast interview with Ryan Van Dyke from Van Dyke Trucking. Dylan and Sam interview Ryan on a variety of topics, including dairy farming and trucking. All right, welcome back to the Outdoor Adventures podcast. I've got my podcast official co-host, Dylan Williams, with me today, and his good buddy, Ryan Van Dyke from Van Dyke Trucking. Hey, Ryan. How's it going? Good. We're glad to have you here. Thank you. Excited to talk to you. We're going to talk a little bit about farming and dairy farming, uh, specifically, along with the trucking industry. So it's a new topic that, to me, anything farming is also an outdoor activity. So, I mean, I the only thing I have to relate to in that regard was my grandfather, my grandpa Joe, he retired as a firefighter and wanted to have cows. And he'd grown up in Nebraska. And I don't know what they farmed out there, but he was a, from a Czechoslovakian family. Probably corn. I'm sure probably <laughs> high likelihood that there was some corn involved. Yeah, and he uh, wanted to have cows. He lived on Sovie Island outside of Portland. And before he passed away, he had a thousand head of beef cattle. Oh, awesome. With him and my uncle. And they had built quite a quite a little business there and selling beef cows and you know, raising them up. And I used to go to livestock auctions with them. And did they just sell uh, to consumer direct or just sell the cows to a butcher? And I think both. Okay. Yeah. Like, you know, they would sell to whoever, but then also I think they would, you know, buy some smaller cows and get them fattened up. And mm-hmm. my uncle still has a feedlot out in uh, Culver. Oh, nice. And then my, this is where the two worlds collide that, that you're involved in farming and trucking. So my, my uncle also, uh, was one of the first guys to haul the the beer mash away from the breweries. Mm-hmm. So when breweries are, started popping up all over Oregon, he would leave a trailer there, mm-hmm. let it fill up with that. And that was just a waste byproduct. Yep. And he would sell it to dairymen. Mm-hmm. So he would then travel, truck it all over the country and sell it to these big dairy farms. And he used to get it for free. Well, then the breweries were like, man, this guy's making money. I got to start charging this guy. So then he started having to pay and eventually he got squoze out by the big guys. And so they would just do a contract where they, they weren't even making money just to squeeze him out. Right. So, yeah, that's a very interesting, um, I was thinking about that this morning when we deciding what we we're going to talk about and everything. And I was going to mention the fact that I don't think people realize how much food waste we have as Americans. Uh, probably all countries too. I don't. I don't really study any of the other countries, but um, a lot of good friends of mine in California that dairy farm. <clears throat> the byproduct of what they use in their feed is crazy. I mean, when you're in the Central Valley, California, they can grow anything, and they have every factory of food you can think of: Keebler cookies to sun-kissed oranges to whatever you know, and and all that stuff, even. I don't know if it's Minute Maid or whatnot, but there's a juice plant down there too. And uh, all the lemons, after they're done squeezing, they don't just throw them away. They go to a dairy, cows eat them, turn it into milk. Mm. All the bakery waste from either bread factories or the, <coughs> excuse me, cookie factories goes right into cow feed. Any carrots that maybe you think, uh, that's a sad part about America too, is every food's got to be so perfect for us to have right in the grocery store. And I even hear Fred Meyer commercials while I'm listening to stuff online. It's like, we make sure our produce is top quality with no bruises, no, you know, there's just like the food tastes the same and everybody's so concerned. They'll pick up a tomato and it's got one scar on it. Oh man, I don't want that. It's like, what's wrong with it? All that stuff goes to waste. But the coolest part is, um, like with the with a ruminant animal, like a cow, sheep's a ruminant animal as well. Where you have that four part stomach, they can turn our garbage, theoretically, according to people, into milk and beef or meat or whatever. <clears throat> so I think that's always been really interesting to me, is that uh, all that stuff doesn't go to waste, you know. And then you have the end of it. It comes out as manure, and there's a million different ways you can do that. You know, whether you compost the dry stuff or spread the liquid stuff or um, trap the methane. They're doing a lot of that now, trapping the methane off the ship ponds in uh, California, and they're running pipelines to to the plants to power your home, to run your trucks. A really good friend of ours, 
he actually was kind of the first, one of the first ones, probably, believe it or not, 15, 20 years ago to kind of start in that venture. And uh, he had had a custom truck here in Coos Bay, pretty well-known um, parts. <coughs> Excuse me. Pretty well-known parts, uh, like truck parts place in um, in Oregon, and they service the whole country. They had built a motor especially to go in a Peterbilt that runs off of methane. That <laughs> So this dairyman of our friend of ours, he was trapping the methane on his dairy, converting it to natural gas, and then he'd put it in his truck, and uh, that's how the truck ran. That's that's an awesome solution. Yeah, uh, here I go. I, I like to start off saying a lot of awesome. So that's yeah, my yeah. Thing too. But still, well, the, the funniest part about that, uh, you can do custom truck license plates in California. You can't do that in Oregon. You just get what they give you. But um, it was Cow Gas One was the license plate. <laughs> so well, it was it was really interesting. They they took a day cab truck, built this motor. It was tiny. I mean, it looked like a car motor sitting in there, especially a long head Peterbilt. There's a lot of room. And uh, then they put a sleeper on it. But it wasn't attached to the truck, and that's where all the tanks and all the plumbing for the for the methane was, or for the natural gas, well, I guess. And, and methane gets blamed for you know eroding the ozone layer, and right. you know, and we don't really talk politics on this show necessarily, but you know, it's always there was all this like you know don't eat beef and go mm-hmm. away from cows because methane's ruining the environment and all that, and I don't know if I fully buy into that. Um, I do, and I don't. I mean. Obviously, if we're trapping it and making it into natural gas, then it's there, right? But I think people, it's it's really sad. I try and advocate for, for farming as much as I can. I mean, my family's been involved in it s- several generations, still is involved. In, my, my personal family is not, but extended family, cousins, aunts, uncles, whatever, are still involved in it. Several good friends. And um, <clears throat> people don't get the opportunity to learn how all that stuff works and uh and they just read you know they just read whatever comes out on on whatever you know CNN or whatever i just saw a thing yesterday that the uk is is trying to incorporate red seaweed into cattle feed to make them not burp and fart so much but and, and people think that's the solution well what Bill Gates is a big pusher for this, and um, conveniently, he just invested into this red seaweed company a couple years ago, and now all of a sudden, they're going to be the leader in trying to, whatever, global warming, this and that and the other. But, I mean, what about all these cars? Everybody gets a new car every two years, and then those old cars don't go anywhere. Like, you look at LA, how many, 15, 20 million people live down there, and you wonder why there's smog? Like... I don't know if people know this or not, but Los Angeles County used to be the biggest dairy county in the whole world, farming and dairy. And that's where that's where my family first moved to when they came from Holland. All, all four of my grandparents all immigrated from Holland to California. And uh, um, like they were where Disneyland was, that was a dairy where uh, you, th- you go down there and it don't, I mean, obviously you would never tell that there was dairies down there, but there, we didn't have or they didn't have uh, smog issues down there. So is it the cows or is it is it the people? You know what I mean? So That's a huge history of dairy farming. That's something I had no idea how many there were. I mean, mm-hmm. I know like in Oregon, Tillamook area was kind of known for dairies. Yep. I know there's a lot less than there used to be. I've done some mortgages for some old dairymen and they would always talk to me about switching over to organic. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the organic buzz thing came out. And, you know, Organic Valley will hire you to basically be a dairy producer. And they, right. they basically, you have to be pesticide free for, I think, five years or something. Yeah, three or five years, I think it is. Um, you, you get an inspection. Mm-hmm. And, and those old timers were always like, yeah, we didn't really change anything. It's just we stopped using pesticides right. and, and we cleaned everything up before the inspection. And yeah, and their, and their hay that they buy is supposed to be organic. Um, it, it was. If you want to live that lifestyle or, you know, that's, that's totally cool. I do think that it's important to grow your own stuff at home. Um, I don't totally trust what mass production farming does, but at the same time, there was, I think that big fad push for organic, blah, 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 blah. It's like Wagyu beef now. 
you can look at a Wagyu steak and somebody could tell you that it's uh, black Angus, purebred black Angus, and you wouldn't even know the difference. But since it's labeled Wagyu, um, let's, you know, double the price and, and everything. And that organic uh, specifically around here, I don't know about the rest of the world, but I know some guys that farm for them and uh, it really fell off when, when COVID happened and, and there was a big, you know, uh, in inflation rise. And next thing you know, it's, you know, five bucks for a gallon of, of milk. Your consumer is not going to be organic anymore. All of a sudden it's okay to drink conventional milk. And, uh, one of the big, one of the big misconceptions too, about, about dairy products and stuff like that is people think that they're buying organic because there's no antibiotics or anything in the milk. And this is the most pure form, but I don't think they realize that if you have to treat a cow with antibiotics, whether you're on a conventional dairy or an organic dairy, that milk doesn't go in the tank. You know, it gets dumped until the antibiotic antibiotics have cleared, and then you can start putting that that milk in the tank again. Every load of every load of milk gets inspected twice: once on the dairy when the truck picks it up, and again once it gets dropped off. And if there's even one little microbial trace of antibiotics in that milk, or, or you know, mastitis is a big thing for, for dairy cows. If there's any trace of anything, that, th- that thing gets dumped. So you, you're not doing yourself any favors by drinking organic milk because the milk that's coming from a conventional na- dairy is just as good. So. How did you kind of, I guess, get this, I won't say fascination, but obviously- you Oh, have it's a f- fascination, yeah, it for is. sure. Okay. But you have this family history, but it sounds like you've really- <clears throat> educated yourself i mean is that just your personality do you dive deep on all the aspects of your life or is this really just a point of interest it's well i'd say trucking and and farming both um dairy farming in specific i guess only just because my family was involved in it for so long you know um still have family members involved in it and i just i don't know i really i really enjoy it i i don't do it for a living obviously but uh, I enjoy the time I get to spend on friends' dairies or uh, my girlfriend's dad has a dairy, and it's always just so fun. I, I don't know what about cows that I like. I don't think anybody that doesn't like – anybody that likes cows will understand what I'm saying when yeah. I say I really like cows. But anybody that doesn't like – they go buy a dairy and they don't think twice about it, then they probably wouldn't understand, right? Well, and there's, there's something for my grandfather, and he was a beef cattleman, but he – he loved cows. Mm-hmm. I mean, he just loved to be out in the field with the cows, out in the back of his pickup, throwing out hay before the big round bills and those types of things, checking on his cows, checking on his calves. Yep. You know, it was just part of the whole experience for him and his dream in retirement was to have this big cattle operation. Yeah. And he, he built it into something pretty cool. For me, as a kid growing up, now beef cattle, it's a little different, but just the smells of my grandpa. Like mm-hmm. when he'd come in, there was a smell yeah. that wasn't necessarily negative, wasn't necessarily positive, but it's just when I, right now I have sheep on my place and I, I only have seven ewes. I've got three, I'm halfway through lambing season. So I've had four babies so far and I got three to go. And that I get that smell every once in a while that reminds me of my grandpa. So yep. it's, I enjoy that aspect. I love seeing these little babies come into the world. There's something about celebrating new life and having new life kind of be born on your place. It's, it's just kind of fun. I, I'm i doing it. You, you can't make money on a small operation. Like I've got right. them I'm losing money feeding these things and vaccinating them and keeping the eagles from eating them. And I mean, you know, I let them outside last Easter. So we're coming up on Easter this Sunday. Last Easter, I had two babies frolicking around and my, my son goes, Hawk, hawk. And there was an eagle with like a seven foot wingspan coming down to grab one of my babies. And we all started yelling at her and she took off. And my daughter had our, we have twins this year and she had the twins out and was just sitting and there was an eagle circling my daughter with the twins. And so she went and scooped them up and ran into the barn and called me. She's all out of breath and dad, there's there's an eagle. I, I got the babies in the barn, you know? And so it's, there's just something about being around I mean, for me, the, our podcast, the Outdoor Adventures podcast, but farming is a big part of the outdoors for me. It, it, it kind of gives me those same feelings as being out in the woods or being out in nature and kind of it's man, man's version of nature, if you right. will. But there's 
a lot of natural elements to it. There's a lot, yeah, there's a lot of enjoyment um, from, you know, just going out in a pasture and walking around and, and you've got, you know, a, a 50 head of mom cows with their babies walking around is, is a pretty cool, pretty cool experience that not, not everybody gets to do. You know, I, some people that are in that industry every day might take it for granted. It's just a day at work. But for me, when I get to be in those situations or walk through a, a freestall barn and look at, you know, 600 head of, of Holsteins with their heads down through stanchions, eating feed, um, I, it's just a cool feeling back to like the smell, back to the smells thing, you know, growing up, um, going to like my mom's uncle, we're kind of one of those families that, you know, it's my mom's uncle, but we just call him my uncle, right? It's really my great uncle or I guess, but going to my mom's uncle's dairy in Southern California, you know, we'd ride around on the golf cart and the smells of the alfalfa, the smells of the, uh, corn silage. A lot of people like the smell of corn silage, but a lot of people like it when it's freshly chopped. I like it after it's fermented for, you know, six weeks and they start feeding it or whatever. And, uh, it's just got that just kind of pungent stench to it and it smells great. And a lot of people think the smell of cow shit's just disgusting. And I think it's awesome. Um, you know, you go by, you go by a dairy on the, on the road and you can smell it for two miles. And that's a big complaint for a modern American. But to me, uh, it just kind of reminds me of, I guess, growing up or just something I've always loved. I've loved it since I can remember. I, d- I definitely think you're unique in in that uh, love of the shit pond smell. <laughs> yeah. As you, I think that's an official term, but yeah. I know when we would drive by the, everybody would be like, you know, who farted? That yeah. was always the thing. Yeah. And it's well, like, it's mm. like when we used to, you know, when the paper mill and was still going, you'd yeah. smell it on the freeway. And, it, and when the wind was just right, my parents, where I grew up, they live about five miles south or so of the, where the paper mill was and you'd smell it and it never bothered me. It kind of reminded me of corn silage, you know, just that them, them putting all the paper into the boiler and boiling it down and stuff. But no, it's a, it's always just been something I've, I've really enjoyed. Um, even down to like milk barns to me are super cool. The different ways they set them up, what equipment people run, you know, uh, rotary milk barns are becoming a really big thing now for efficiency. You can get the cows in. They they take, I don't know if you've ever seen one before, but a traditional milk barn, you know, back in the 40s and 50s would have been like a, a flat barn. All the cows come in and, and you move a milking machine from one to another. So that's how my grandpa first started milking when they came over. Well, when he was old enough to start milking. Um, and then, you know, transitioned into, they had, a couple hookups, like uh, a six uh, machine flat barn. And then it transitioned into a pit style. So now you got a double six and, and the cows stand up above you. And then as dairies got bigger and bigger, you know, some of them now you'll see a double 48. So you'll have 48 cows on each side getting milked. And there was, you know, different variations of all that herringbone style and, and parallel style and, and, um, now transitioning into the modern world with with rotaries and then robotics too. Robotic milking has become a really big thing as as dairymen try and struggle or try and battle the struggle of employment issues. So that's that's pretty sad, but we've we've come to the point where um all of a sudden you're too everyone's too good to milk cows, right? Which I mean it's shitty work. I've never really done it myself, but I, I've hooked up, you know, a couple machines or, or helped a friend here and there. I think it's fun, but I probably wouldn't want to do it for eight hours straight, you know? So you you come into this world where the migrant worker, you know, they, the dad is, has proven himself, but now the son is, gets to live the American life. Right. And, they're going to go off to school, which I don't blame them. You know, that's totally fine, but we're losing that workforce. And then for us, you know, as that's too good to do, you know, we're too good for that. So everybody's kind of has had to pick their battle. You know, do I, do I switch to a rotary or do I switch to a, uh, a robotic milking? Well, robotic milkers are not cheap. I just, I hauled uh, four of them a couple years ago for a dairyman up in Washington and I was talking to them. They were used and they were $250,000 a piece used. And they were, I mean, they were used, you know, 
And so I can't imagine what a new one would cost, probably upwards of 700 to a million per unit. Uh, it's, it's great in the fact that you don't have to, you're going to pro- you're going to get your return on your investment. Right. But, um, you know, it's interesting. The cows go in there when they want. And if they've been milked already, they get pushed out because cows get milked, you know, two times a day on average, sometimes three, depending on the size of the dairy. Um, but yeah, it's really interesting. That's it. You got to sell a lot of milk to get the yeah. return on that investment. Mm-hmm. You know? um, I do want to jump in a little bit. Sam, you mentioned at the beginning that we want to consider farming part of the outdoors and stuff. And uh, we're going to try to mix in some more of these podcasts with different types of things just for the ordinary life. And then also I wanted to jump in about back to the fascination thing with you, Ryan. Um, did that fascination start because your family had the dairy or is that something after you start, you hauled to a dairy or something? And Probably because my family was involved in it. Um, I mean, that's where I would have got my first glimpse of it, you know? So my, I guess if you want to hear the full story, I mean, my, my, when my grandparents came, they were, I think my grandma was seven when they came over, they came over on a ship to, uh, Hoboken, New Jersey, rode a train, rode the Santa Fe for three days from New Jersey to Southern California into the Chino area. And my mom's also from Chino. Um, and then my grandpa, he came over when he was like three or four, you know, probably too young to remember, but they flew over. And back then when, when you were trying to leave, you know, post-war Europe, uh, this is right after World War II, 47, 48 or whatever, when you were trying to leave there, you had to have a sponsor here in America already that basically was going to say, hey, I'll give you a job. I'll take you in. Otherwise, you couldn't come. Like if you had nobody here, you just couldn't come over, right? And I don't know when that all changed. My my grandma is, is just an amazing historian. And that's probably where I get – and her dad was too. And uh, as well as photography, that's probably where I get a lot of my passions for that kind of stuff. Um, understanding family history – writing things down, taking pictures of everything. My girlfriend, uh, she makes fun of me all the time because I take a million pictures while I'm doing stuff, whether it's my truck or we're at the dairy or um, just in general. I just like to have pictures. I like to look back on it. Well, you know, what's cooler than sitting down? Uh, I listened to your one podcast with Dylan's dad and his uncle. And uh, what's cooler than sitting down and flipping through a photo album? And, and every picture's got a story, right? And so... I've, I've sat down with my grandma a lot over the years growing up and hearing all those stories of when they got, I mean, even last Sunday we were texting back and forth about what ship they came over on and, and all this stuff. But anyway, so they came over and, uh, I don't, I don't know. I can't remember who my grandma's parent family's sponsor was, but as far as my grandpa, George Van Dyke, that his uncle or his great uncle, I guess, was already here in the 20s in Southern California. He had a dairy. And so they started working for him until they, you know, got enough money to buy their own cows. And then they'd rent a dairy down there. And they moved around uh, that area a little bit. Santa Ana, Anaheim, um, Artesia was the, was the big area, which Artesia is not even really a town anymore. It's, it's called Cerritos now. So if you ever going down I-5 south of L.A. and you see Cerritos or um, Commerce area, that's that's where all the dairy, that's where most of the dairies were. Anyway, so in the '60s, I guess you'd see a you would see a big push in South L.A. for housing, freeways. Um, that's that's kind of when everything started, and uh, all those dairymen, you know. If your dairy had the freeway, if the freeway was going to come through your dairy, you're going to have to move. If housing tracks were going to come where your dairy was, you're going to have to move. So they got paid out very well. Our family, we didn't own a dairy down there. We just rented and owned our own cows, or my grandpa did, or great-grandpa, I guess. But um, So a lot of those guys really, really struck out pretty well because the freeway was going to come right through the back acre of their farm. And, uh, so then they moved everybody. You saw this migration that moved out to Chino, which was, uh, East LA, um, Ontario area. I don't know if you are familiar with that area at all, but so that's where my mom grew up when all those dairies came out of Artesia, moved to Chino 
everybody had the money. Well, not everybody. A lot of people just had the money to build, boom, brand new dairy right there, a lot bigger size than they had in Artesia and everything. And life was good, right? Because they cashed out on the, the exactly. freeway coming through. And Can you imagine being uh, having to build, like what they had to do to get that ground you know, oh, yeah. like if they were going to build right where the pond was or mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. And, and Dylan, I apologize. We, you know, we go podcast official and make you the co-host and then we don't let you talk. So, oh, I'm sorry. Dylan. You're going to have to. No, I know it's totally fine. No, not I you. Mean, oh. I'm just saying me, you and I had a long conversation before. We <laughs> yeah, did. no, I know I'm with two very talkative gentlemen. Yeah, so I do. En- I do I, enjoy I do talking. a lot of listening with, with Ryan and I's phone call. It's nice. I like it. Well, I mean, Ryan, you okay. honestly, I don't know you that well, <laughs> but you, you have a lot. I mean, you have all this stuff off the top of your head. I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's, I think it's really interesting to listen to all this stuff because I kind of, I'm not a historian myself, but right. I love hearing that kind of stuff. Yeah. I, I just, I've, I've loved, just love that stuff. I mean, I, and it's got to be something I'm interested in. You know, if it's old cars, old trucks, dairy stuff, I'll listen to it. If it's, uh, I don't know, just some random artifacts that I really don't care about, then, then whatever. But, um, just farming in, in general, you know, was a big part of my family's life. Uh, so I, I've just always enjoyed it. So yeah, they, uh, they ended up moving to Oregon because at that time when everybody was migrating to Chino and then you're seeing it now again in Chino, or you have been the last 10, 15 years. Now the freeways coming into Chino, the houses are coming into Chino. Uh, so you might've got lucky enough to cash out again and let's, you know, let's move up to the central Valley or let's move to Texas or let's move to Idaho or whatever and, and kind of start over. Right. So take, take that skill set Like we've talked about hunting, take it to somewhere else, mm-hmm. start it over mm-hmm. and do it all over again. Like you're saying it, but it wasn't when they cashed out, it wasn't typically sounds like enough where, Hey, they're going to re- be able to retire oh. forever. It wasn't like that kind of money uh, or was it? It was people? a lot of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a lot of money. I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna speak on how much it was. Cause I don't know, but it, it was a, it was a decent amount. If, if you got, if you got the freeway coming in, I understand from hearing stories, if the free, if, it, if the freeway was coming in, you got a lot more than if, if it was a housing tract. And then if you got industrial buildings coming in, it's a lot more than a housing tract. So, but anyway, um, yeah, so I guess in, in 67 or 68, somewhere around there, you know, my great grandpa and, and George, they didn't own a dairy down there. So they weren't going to cash out on the land, but they owned the cows. And at that time, everybody's leaving. And they had looked at a couple dairies in the Central Valley, tipped into Larry areas, um, and then they, you know, kind of heard about Oregon and they came up to look at it and they're thinking, man, what the podunk town, you know, this is the, the boondocks from what we're compared to, you know, imagine growing up in South LA in the sixties, fifties and sixties, where you've got Hollywood just up the street and everybody wasn't so woke then. And you could go out and get a soda for five cents and cruise your 61 Impala up and down Bellflower Boulevard and go to the drive-in with your friends and stuff. And yeah, you, they didn't have that in Oregon, right? Yeah. Um, so that old world Hollywood had to be awesome. Man. Yeah, had to you be know a that's where the experience. the cool music was coming out, Ray Price, and all like just all this cool stuff from the '60s. But when you came to Oregon, you could double what you had for your money. I mean, so they they ended up renting two dairies. Uh, from what I understand, they rented those farms in Corvallis, bought new cows, or moved the cows up there. I can't remember. And then they ended up buying a, a dairy and kind of refurbishing it and adding on to it in Salem, West Salem, off of Wallace Road. It's still there. Just go up Wallace Road as you're headed to Dayton, and there's a real sharp corner to the right, and the dairy driveway keeps going straight. So that's where they dairied for a long time, and that's how my grandpa started driving truck as well. Um, uh, he dropped out of high school his freshman year because he just didn't do the school thing very well. Uh, just didn't like it. He's just, he liked, I mean, I'm not going to say he likes screwing off, but he likes screwing off. He'd rather be working, making money. And so his dad basically told him, Hey, if you're just going <laughs> to screw off in school, you're going to have, you're going to work full time. Well, that might sound like a threat, but to my grandpa, okay, that's fine with me. So freshman year, he, he started milking full time. And then 
they had sold their cows and there was a period of time before they moved to Oregon, they were trying to decide where they wanted to go. So my grandpa got a job at a roofing company and that roofing company was right next door to a place called Artesia Hay and Grain. And they had really cool milk trucks and, um, really cool hay trucks and everything. So he just, he always loved, you know, they'd come into the dairies and deliver stuff. And he just thought trucks were the coolest thing ever, you know, screw this, screw these cows, screw getting up at one o'clock in the morning, even though in the trucking world, you get up at one o'clock in the morning, but, um, he just always wanted a truck. So when they moved to Oregon, you know, you didn't have these big dairy company, uh, big feed companies up here at that time. So you kind of had to make your own hay or haul your own hay. Well, here in the Willamette Valley, as many people will know, you can't grow alfalfa. It's just too wet, right? And so he bought a uh, he bought an old Chevy flatbed truck and rebuilt the bed or built a new bed for it or something like that and started hauling hay for, for their dairy. And then that turned into hauling for neighbors' dairies and it kind of just escalated from there into what it is now. I was wondering how we were going to transition from dairy farming to trucking, but it, <laughs> yeah, it sounds like, it. yeah, it's a natural... So before we move on to more of the trucking stuff, where do you see the future for the dairymen? Like, you know, a new person trying to get in, we've talked a little bit about this. Like there's not, it's hard. Mm, If you don't own your own ground or you don't get it inherited from family, I mean, the the barrier to entry into that industry is a lot to overcome. Yeah. um, And I've talked to several people because I've always thought about, you know, could I do this myself? Uh, is that a path that I could see myself taking if I wanted to, right? And from the outside looking in, you know, it's simple. Buy some cows, you get a milk contract, blah, 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 blah. But you don't realize, you know, feed is at almost an all-time high. I think it's dropped off a little bit, but there for a while, it's been an all-time high that it's ever been. I mean, you're you're just paying out the ass for feed and hay and... um there's a shortage of everything. You know, the last couple of years of weather where all the hay comes from, there's just been no rain. Utah, Nevada, um, Arizona, they really struggled. And so that's going to drive the price of hay up because there's not that much. You know, instead of getting six or seven cuttings, these guys are getting four or five. Well, that's a lot of hay that's not out there. Um, I'm not going to say it's impossible because I, I, like I said, I've never done it um, myself, but there's a couple pretty good friends that I talk to that are, are pretty successful dairymen. And some will say, don't even, what are you doing? You know, don't even think about it. And some will say, you know, it'd be an uphill grind, but I think you could get it done. But I think it would really have to take, you know, the right person that has not only a good business smarts and financial smarts, but just knows how to be a good farmer. And, um, has the people that they can talk and connect with that can give you those insights of how to do things right or, you know, what's a what's a good thing to do and what's a bad thing to do. You know, if things are going good, the milk price is up, save your money. You don't, don't go buy new tractors and don't go buy stuff you don't need. You need to save that because that milk price or that feed price is going to fluctuate a lot. It's a very volatile business. Yeah, and the the agritainment too, you know, the whole like, let's take what we're doing in the farming world and turn it into something that the general population would want to come tour or have some specialty cheese yep. or pair it with well, one of these local vineyards or, you know, go the boutique kind of approach. That niche market's been a big thing. Um, I I know of some farmers in, in uh, California that they transitioned into a goat dairy. And they make goat milk and goat cheese and stuff like that. Now, that doesn't really seem that fun to me because I don't really care for goats or sheep. But um, if that's, you know, if that's the way your life leads you or the Lord leads you in in, in that aspect of things, you kind of just got to go with it. And so like Tillamook, you know, they're, they're a very, you mentioned Tillamook earlier, they're a very well-known cheese brand, ice cream. You know, they've, they've delved into cream cheese and sour cream over the years. And there's a dairyman over there. He's on, he's on social media. His name's Derek Josie. I've, I've talked to him a couple times. I don't think he would know who I was if I showed up at his place, but he's, he uh, is a real big advocate for what they do. And if you look him up, it's TDF Honest Farming on, on there. It stands for Tillamook Dairy Farmer. And he's just, he's just, uh, 
like clear glass. I mean, I mean, this is how we do things and this is how stuff is done. And pe- some people really enjoy it, but he gets a lot of hate for it too. And it takes a special person like himself to be able to combat with, with the haters, I guess you'd say people that think, you know, you're stealing the baby away from its mom and stuff like this. And, and, uh, you don't take care of your cows because you only milk them for so long. And then you, then you just butcher them and, you know, cows aren't pets. They're not a, they're not a cat or a dog. Or I, I don't know if saying they're not domesticated would be the right word, but it's not like you're going to have one living in your house with you. Some people might do that, but that's just not the way of the world. They don't understand that if you turned all these dairy cows out on on uh, open land, they'd be dead in two weeks. Coyotes get them, wolves would get them. I mean, they're just that's just not what they are, right? Well, and dairy cows, it's a big animal. How big are they generally? Uh, well, like a Holstein, Hol- Friesian Holstein, well, small tidbit, white and black cows they came from holland right so my all my family they're from a northern part of holland called friesland and so that's where all those cows came from the black and white ones and then you got jerseys tillamook is a very very big jersey area because they have a better components in their milk meaning higher butter fat and things like that and so they're better for cheese making and and um everything not fluid milk per se like tillamook doesn't bottle milk right whereas um you know, Holsteins, they'll give a lot more milk versus they're a bigger animal. Like, I'm not going to say twice the size, but they're they're a, a quarter size bigger than than a Jersey cow would be. Jerseys are going to give a lot less milk, probably 60, 70 pounds a day. Holsteins are going to probably, on average, you know, 90 to 100 pounds a day. But your butter fat's going to make up that difference of, you know, how what the quality of the milk is. But it, it is kind of funny noticing the characteristic characteristic differences in some of these cows holsteins are kind of long and lanky and jerseys are kind of short and they move really fast but they're also really really dumb too i mean they'll tear apart a barn like you wouldn't even believe that's a that's a lot of animal to deal with you know as a if you were a hobby guy getting into that Mm -hmm. i mean those are big animals and you've got i've Mm -hmm. always noticed because i always look on Craigslist or where, wherever for farm animals, and the you can buy like a Holstein or a Jersey male for like twenty five bucks mm-hmm. because they don't want the boys, right? right? I mean, they want to raise up that next generation that they can milk. Yep. Um, and so they'll sell those little boy babies off for pretty much nothing. Yeah. You know. Yeah, that is that does happen. A lot of people will you know castrate them. Uh, and raise them for beef. I'm not going to say it's the best meat out there, but if you can get a, if you can get a, uh, a lot of guys now, and I'm sure it's been going on for several, several years, but a, a lot of guys now are breeding um, cross with Angus. So they'll put like Angus semen into a, into a Holstein heifer or whatever, and it'll pop out a little black and white thing that kind of looks like a Holstein, but it's meat's going to be a lot better. Right. And if you have any black on a cow, you can call it Angus beef. I mean, that's, <laughs> right. that's, that's what I heard. That's the, the rule. Yeah. So. so, um, but you know, uh, as far as like kind of back to the beefing thing, like I don't think a, pe- a lot of people realize too, is if you like to go down to McDonald's and get yourself a quarter pounder or a Big Mac or whatever on occasion, you know, a lot of that's dairy meat, you know, um, Holsteins that have kind of reached their lifespan, jerseys that have kind of reached their lifespan, they go to slaughter, and that's that's kind of what they are using that meat for. So uh, there's no waste at all, and uh, that's the part I like to get across because a lot of people just think it's uh, you know a big factory and 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 everything. And and these farmers, you know, there's there's going to be an outlier in every aspect. There's bad truckers, there's bad real estate agents or or home lender agents. There's there's bad city workers, right? Not me. <laughs> but, you know, you can't let one or two bad farmers that you've seen or let a propaganda video that you've seen uh, infiltrate your thinking on how these animals are cared for. Uh, a dairyman's not going to make money if he doesn't take care of his animals. Yeah, so. and like you said, the no waste thing. I mean, we've all heard about the Elmer's glue coming from, you know, the the bones or whatever. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I really, every part of that animal yeah. is, cat, is getting used. Food, well, and I you feel know. like a lot of people too don't, like, it's hard to wrap your head around, like, that's a food source. That's what they're using them yep. for. Yeah, and, and that's, they're getting that, everything out of that. That's what they've always, sorry, I need to turn my mic here a little bit. That's what they've 
that's what they've been, you know, bred to, bred for, and that's that's what their purpose is, right? Yeah. Just as uh, a head of lettuce is for a salad, right? I'm one of those creepy guys that likes to watch those abscess cow videos on Facebook, mm. where they, you know, a cow's got a big old abscess and they go oh. and poke that thing. Yep. That is just amazing to me. I'm just always fast. Whenever I bump into one of those, I'm like, okay, I gotta watch this. <laughs> yeah. <You know>? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of stuff. And, and it's good to see some some more people on social media posting what they do. There's a hoof trimmer on TikTok that I watched quite a bit. I've and seen those hoof trimming. Those are cool too. Yeah, it's really gross. Like I, I, my stomach doesn't turn much for anything, but seeing an abscess in a cow's hoof is is kind of disgusting. But what what are those usually caused from? Do you know? Um, you know, they could step on a nail. They could. Um, just some sort of infection of some sort, step on a rock, you mm. know, uh, and it, and it gets wedged in there somehow. And then, you know, you don't catch it cause the hoof trimmer is not there every day. Yeah. Maybe on a big dairy, they're there every day, but they're working with different cattle. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, it's, it's just same thing as mastitis, right? It's just an infection mastitis. That's why, I don't know if you've ever been in a milk barn before, but um, you know they post and pre-dip their cows before before and after they milk with an iodine solution. That's kind of a, a antibiotic type of. It's not an antibiotic, but it's just kind of a type of a sealant, sort of. And because those cows are going out of the milk barn, they're going to go back down and lay in their free stalls or lay in their open lots, and they're laying basically in dirt. And and if they end up peeing or pooping where they where they're laying, because cows like to do that. Um, if you get anything up in that in that teat, then it'll get infected, and that's where that mastitis comes from. But and as a farmer, you want to give your animals any advantage you can. So, right. like my really small scale sheep thing, I try to like really up my feed when I know I got mamas that are, and I I warmed everybody this season because we had last year was my first lambing season, and my mamas didn't do very well after giving birth. And I watched all these online videos. I thought I had a calcium calcium deficiency on my pastures and um, was, you know, giving them all this high quality feed. Well, then I watched another sheep guy who um, his moms looked just like mine. They were just real lethargic after giving birth mm-hmm. and like having trouble walking. I mean, just in really bad shape. And he said her parasite count was just high. And so I warmed them all this year before lambing season. They're doing great. Awesome. Doing so much better. So you learn as you go along. Yeah. I mean, I'm new to this. I mean, we have the advantage of YouTube and all the technology out there. I was there just going to gonna say the wealth of information that everybody has nowadays. And I think you and Jay Yellis touched on that. You can learn to fish in 10 minutes on YouTube, you know, or find out what works. And, and Jay was speaking on the fact that, you know, we had to go talk to people. Yeah. And not everybody wants to talk, you know. Not everybody's going to give their two cents or their trade secrets or if they do it might be the wrong one you know and just because they don't they don't want you to know but facebook and and groups and and stuff like that is 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 awesome same for the trucking industry too i like that you brought up that they're not pets though too so that's my struggle with these sheep you know you raise them as babies and they're cute and they're out frolicking and jumping and they're doing all these things and they're just i i can't i like the thought of eating them after you raise them what is your plan with them well, I kept all of last year's babies, but our pasture is at capacity. So I have to sell this year. So I'm just going to sell them and I don't want to know what people are going to do with them, but I've just, you know, that's, that's my plan. Um, we, we have some wool, some of my sheep are wool sheep, others are not. And so, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to best utilize that wool, but that's, there's really honestly not a whole lot of money in sheep. I think the, the cow arena is a little bit easier to, at least on a small scale. It's right. very difficult to make money. Um, but like you get at, the one thing is with an animal that is has such a low IQ, that helps you understand why people can eat them because mm-hmm. you're kind of like, okay, this is food on the hoof, you know, yeah. to a degree. Well, so when you got started, was there a different, like, were you planning on eating them when you got well, started? Well, so how this? we got started and when we bought our place is there was one sheep left behind. And so we, we bought the house with this old sheep on the there. And then, so then we, and her name was Sheila. And we decided to, okay, we need to get Sheila a companion. And so then we got Larry, our goat. And so we just had Sheila and Larry and that was it. And then I got this small flock of Icelandic sheep from this family that was moving to Belize. 
And so they were selling all their livestock. I don't know if they won the lottery or what, but they were getting out of Dodge and they were selling their place, selling all their cows, all their sheep. And so I bought their small flock, which was, I think it was four ewes and actually two rams. And one of the rams we called LJ, which was for little jerk, because he would chase my kids all around the place. And <laughs> oh, they're was, mean. Oh, and he was always getting out and, um, and he was strong. And finally, like he was just harassing. He didn't mess with me as much, but my wife and my kids just, they, as soon as they get out of the car, they'd run because he would get out. And <laughs> like my son, one night, he's got a box of like small mini snack size chips, you know, for his lunches. And that sheep, she, he comes running off the hill and I run to get in between my son and the sheep because I knew he was coming after my kid. And I grabbed that box of chips and put it in between us and he just, chips were flying everywhere, you know. <laughs> he got sold relatively quickly after that. So, but it's, yeah, I mean, I got into it with just the intention of maybe eating some of them, selling some. I mean, obviously in Oregon, if you can farm part of your acreage for a couple of years and you can get a property tax deferral. So that was my thought. But when you really factor in all the work and expense. Yeah, that, that tax deferral doesn't go very yeah, far. Yeah, twenty. I keep telling my wife, we're going to get a tax break. And she's like, so how much did you spend on grain last month? Mm-hmm. You know, so it's... Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's a tough business all across the board, whether you want it to be a hobby or, or, or a life, you know, that's what you want to do, right? I think it's it's hard either way. Well, if you're going to make it a life too, that's an investment. Big time. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of money up front. Farming in general is a big investment um, no matter what. I mean, either whether you're renting the ground or, I mean, you got, if you're doing grass seed, you know, we're the grass seed capital of the world here in Lynn County, you know, you if you buy it after it's just harvested or start farming, you got a whole nother year before it's going to harvest again. And if you want to plant hazelnuts, you, you know, that a lot of guys have done here, that's five years, four or five years before you even get somewhat of a, a yield off of that. I mean, it's, it's a lot. Yeah. And you can have, at least in those type of crops, you can have disease or something or mm-hmm. weather that can just wipe you out. Yeah. You know? And that's I mean, why the hazelnuts actually started here was uh, Turkey, the country was, was uh, they were pretty much number one hazelnut producer or filberts, whatever you want to call them. Um, and they had a crazy some disease or some weather thing that came in and just wiped out like some 70 odd percent of their crop. And uh, from my understanding, I guess Hershey's and Nestle, everybody that puts hazelnuts in their stuff, maybe Nutella too. I don't know who owns Nutella, but um, they were looking for a climate similar to Turkey that we need to start growing hazelnuts right now. And that's kind of, from what I understand, pushed it in this area. I've got some friends that farm some. I, I really don't ask about crop farming too much. I'm more interested in cattle, but. Yeah, well, the hazelnut thing too. I mean, I think we only do like 7% of the world share yeah. or something. So Turkey's still dominating yeah. that space. But we are, you know, we definitely are producing some nuts yep. in the Willamette Valley. So let's go ahead and switch over to trucking. I'm going to go, Dylan, you guys have a background there. So I'll let you kind of get that ball rolling yeah well so ryan and i met up shoot i was probably five i don't know we were young um at a brooks truck show the brooks truck show yeah nothing better than the third brooks weekend truck of show. august come on out yeah <laughs> come on out and see ryan van dyke <laughs> uh but i wanted you to kind of talk a little bit more because i know our grandparents kind of got started and that's obviously how you and i met so i was wondering if you could give us a little background on where your grandpa kind of got started in the truck realm and how those two met. Yeah, so I know your grandpa was was pretty high up at Willamette Industries, correct? Yep. Um, I, I don't, it must have just been through hauling or, or, or something for Willamette that they had met, I think. But when George kind of slowly transitioned from hauling hay and, you know, that wasn't always enough to pay the bills. So, cause there's only so many dairies you can haul for. Um, then he, uh, started hauling a lot for this company in, in tangent at the time was called IMT and they would have, uh, what's called owner operators. Basically you own the truck and we give you the loads, but you you know, you pay, we take a percentage off the top, blah, blah, blah. So he started hauling wood products and a lot of their main stuff was for Boise Cascade, Willamette Industries, you know, big names around here. Boise Cascade still very well known. Willamette Industries since got bought out by Weyerhaeuser 
And, um, so, you know, I load, we load at those mills every day and it was kind of interesting. I think your grandpa was in sweet, sweet home or Lebanon mill. Yeah. I, well, he kind of did those regional, all, all of those. Yeah. Was, was he, uh, I guess I should ask my grandpa yesterday, but is, was he in charge of the trucking or the shipping or that? I'm not sure. All, all I've ever been told from all these stories was he just, he was in charge, if you will. Right. Right. uh, Okay took over these couple mills. I don't remember how many it was. I think it was three or four yeah. or something like that. And for those that don't know, these are lumber operations. Yeah, lumber, yeah, uh, lumber, mostly uh, plywood also and veneer, which is, you know, an eight-foot section of log that's peeled down with a lathe into um, usually four-by-eight sheets. Then it's dried, and that's what makes plywood and, and all that stuff. Um, but, yeah, so Dylan's grandpa – or sorry, your grandpa um, – uh, I assume they would have met through just through the the general trucking industry, the the area, right? And so George was hauling around for these mills, and then you know met awesome people, and and uh, it kind of just kind of just escalated from there. And he never wanted to be more than one truck uh, until I think IMT was going out of business or or something. I I can't remember. But basically, Boise Cascaded came to my grandpa, really appreciated his work ethic. I mean, he wasn't afraid to work 24 hours straight. Uh, he'd, back then, you could just do that stuff. Mills were open. You didn't have this 7 to 2.30 and, and 6 to 4, uh, and you could just do whatever. And so they basically had told him, hey, you know, we've got this haul that we really need help on. It, can you add a couple trucks? And, oh, yeah, I guess I'll think about it. Well, he, he ended up hiring a good friend of his that was, I believe, also at IMT. His name was Phil Wright, awesome guy. And uh, he kind of stuck by my grandpa's side and helped him grow his company, uh, just being a good, really good employee with him. And uh, it kind of grew, you know, just grew from there. But, oh. Go oh, ahead. go ahead. Oh, so, um, yeah, our grandpa, our grandpas were just, really good friends through the years. And, and as we started going to truck shows, you know, your grandpa was also part of that going to shows with my grandpa. I remember they, they took like a three week venture to Phoenix and Las Vegas and, and all this crazy stuff together. I mean, they spent a lot of time together. Yeah. A lot of time. So, um, I guess that's, you know, we would go, go to truck shows together and hang out. I, we, we weren't, you know, super close back then, but knew who each other were and, and all that. And then we've really hung out a lot in the last couple of years. Yeah. So, well, then I also wanted to know too, I mean, this is kind of off topic from this, but, um, what was it, what was required to drive a truck then? Back then? Yeah. Well, they had a thing called a chauffeur's license instead of a CDL. And I don't remember what the requirements of all that was. I'm pretty sure you could just have some state cop just sign off on it and go down. You know, kids that grew up around that knew how to drive truck. Nowadays, though, you have to you have to go as of February of last year in Oregon. Washington has always been this way, but you have to go to a, a truck driving school. Expensive. Yeah, it's it's probably from what I understand is like 5,000 bucks for a six week course. You can take a 12 week course. I'd, I'd assume that is more expensive. That's probably a good idea because the truckers that I come across a lot are not smart. I mean, there's, there's the bad seeds in, in every apple, right? Um, but it really hinders the kids like you or I or the farm kid from down the street or whatever that grew up running farm truck around or grew up driving the pickup around, like knows what they're doing, right? Um, yet they're still getting forced to to go and take the course. I wish there was a way to test out of it, but unfortunately there's not. So for anybody that is thinking about getting their CDL, there's a couple places around here that does that. There's, um, hell, they were next to our shop for a long time and I can't even remember their name. But they're they're there in I've Millersburg. Seen the I, ITR, IITR, IITR, um, and there's a, I think it's Truck Driving Academy of Oregon or something. Um, but yeah, that's unfortunately what you have to do now. Dylan, what was the name of your grandpa's trucking company? Well, he started. It was First Creek Trucking. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I, I'm not necessarily sure on how that really started. I don't. I don't recall too much of that. And I don't remember how many trucks he had, uh, but also Dylan's uncle 
owns Ram Trucking down there in Brownsville, very good friend of ours. And uh, I did Bill have a part of that at all? Or I think he did a little bit. And then, well, like my dad drove for my grandpa when he still worked at Willamette. Okay. And then, um, so my dad always worked on his trucks and stuff. Right. And my dad, when he, he was a logger at the time, when he'd get laid off, he would go work for my grandpa at Willamette and then um, help detail a truck take it out, take it for a couple loads, haul a couple loads, and then uh, right back to the logging thing. But then my grandpa, he was pretty much, I feel like he always had two trucks. Mm -hmm. One was always the one that was going to the show all the time, and right. then the other one he would take to the show, but it was always hauling something that he's yeah. taken. Yeah, very iconic truck your grandpa had, that Buzz and Dozen 73. Mm -hmm. I uh, love that truck. V12, Kenworth, Long Hood. Um, going back to me and Dylan being friends when we were young, uh, you know, always going to truck shows with whether Dylan was there, or I was there, or we both weren't there, but like our grandpa, our grandpas always went and Dylan's dad, Jason would frequently go too. And, um, I think I spent more time riding in the truck with Jason to truck shows than anything. I mean, we went all the way to Colorado one time for a truck show, uh, close to Denver and, uh, Rode, rode a lot with your dad and Torino. Was that in and his... Uh, that was in the blue 16, Kenworth. Oh, it was? Yeah. I, I I don't know that your dad's 63 was in Colorado. I can't remember that or not. I think it was in Reno a couple times. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's just a lot of good memories. So how many trucks do you guys have at Van Dyke Trucking? Uh, we're running about 15 right now. It's um, when I Back when I was in high school, we were running about 27. But... Um, so you've scaled back a little bit? Yeah, just it's hard to find drivers. I mean, we're not actively ever really looking for drivers, and, and this sounds really bad, but we're really, really picky with, with our guys, and we've just been super blessed to have the right guys at the right time, right? When we need a guy, we, we end up finding one, not even, not even looking, but a friend of a friend got recommended or whatever. And I'd say we're probably doing about the same amount of work with 15 trucks as we did with 27. I would say that sounds really good. <clears throat> yeah, it, Sorry. it if is. If you get the best of the best, yeah, that's what you want. Super, super fortunate in that fact. You know, um, I, I hear nothing but good things about our guys and, and we should probably sometimes I think we should probably be a little more appreciative to themselves, you know, doing stuff, a company so it, dinner. Or you don't whatever, give but. multiple options. It's a, you work for us kind of thing. Are they pay? Are you guys paid by the mile? Or are they paid by the load? How do you pay? We're all guys? paid by the load. Yeah. Some companies, uh, around here pay by the hour. Um, we kind of want to encourage everybody to haul the extra load, right? Go the, do the extra work. You know, uh, I feel like hourly pay, sometimes you get guys that drag their feet or whatever. And when there's stuff that needs to be done and Hey, you know, it's an extra 50 bucks or a hundred bucks to end your Friday. You know, you normally don't have guys that say no to that or Saturday work or whatever. Well, as a mortgage lender, I've run into truckers pay from all different angles, mm -hmm. right? The, the pay by the mile, the pay by the hour, the salary guy, the paid by the load guy, the guy that gets a share of the truck, the yeah. truck's profit, and then the owner operators that are yep. running their own show and they're paying their own expenses. And then we treat them like self-employed and we look at their taxes. And right. it's amazing how many different ways you can get paid in trucking. And it's, um, you know, it's been the people I've seen all, they work really hard. They work a lot of hours. Um, it's hard on your body, I think, being in a truck. And I don't think people really realize, you know, that toll. My dad, worked for one of the local titanium plants as a material handler for years. So he drove the truck back and forth from Albany to typically Portland or Salem. And he'd do two, three runs a day kind of thing. And he'd go back and forth with big hunks of titanium that would need to get tested. You know, So he would take a load up there, get it tested, have to find something to kill time with in between and then bring stuff back. And I mean, he was hauling back and forth pretty much every day. Mm -hmm. And I mean, so he was a truck driver in that regard, but he came home every night. He wasn't on the road, not long haul. He wasn't sleeping in his truck. He didn't have a truck like that. Right. Yeah. Most of our guys are home every day now. Um, back when we were running more trucks, um, we, you know, we had guys out, they might leave Sunday afternoon and they're not back in the yard till Friday. And we've kind of changed, um, 
not necessarily because that's what the drivers wanted, but just a lot more local work has picked up in the last couple of years uh, to give us the ability to keep guys home. And everybody's really enjoyed that. I've always been a guy that's been home every day. We kind of offered we kind of offer two bases of pay. One that says, I need to be home every night and you will be. Or one that says, hey, I'm okay staying out if I you know, need to run to Boise or Spokane. Because we still do some of that um, Eastern Washington, Western Idaho. Um, we stopped running to California. We stopped running to Texas. We, we, we used to do the Western 11 basically, which is Oregon, Washington and California, Nevada, New Mexico, all that stuff. Um, but since then we've, we, we basically kind of just operate between, uh, the Canadian border and the Oregon, California border and anywhere in between. What are you guys hauling typically? Mostly, mostly building materials. I'd say, uh, 99.5% of everything is building materials, whether that be in the form of, you know, lumber, green or dry, veneer, green or dry, uh, finished plywood, um, coiled steel. We do a lot of coiled steel for uh, a company out of Washington and a company out of Oregon. And they're building hay barns. And if you want a metal roof on your house, they'll form it for you. And we haul out, we, we haul most of the stuff in there, but on, on occasion, we'll also haul stuff out. You know, they're formed pieces that are going to a job site. Um, we recently just stopped hauling Pepsi. We hold Pepsi for 25 years. Um, hauled that all over Oregon and Washington, which is, I tell people we haul Pepsi and they're like, what the heck, you know, in a curtain van, how does that work? But yeah, they would just dock load it and right down the middle of the trailer. So that was, that was always pretty fun. Got to go to Costco's and, um, you know, you might snag a, a, a free case of Pepsi once in a while because the thing was damaged and the forklift driver was feeling good that day. So now you're walking out with a 12 pack of Mountain Dew or something, but, uh, yeah, so we've, we've really come a long ways from hauling hay. My uncle still hauls quite a bit of hay and, and I, I used to do that with him when, when we had the chance. Are um, you, uh, what type of trailer setup do you have? I mean, are you strapping your loads? Or? Yeah, mostly everything. We've got a, we've got a couple variations. Mostly everything is, is 53 foot four axle Western trailer. They're, they're built in Boise, Idaho. The only reason I'm asking is my wife works in insurance and the, she does a lot of truck driving type things and it, she deals with workers comp side of insurance. Oh, yeah. And a lot of these trucking guys, they get hurt by the straps. The two most common things that I've heard her talk about, and she can't go into details or anything like names or anything, but she, you know, a lot of slip and falls. So, you know, it's icy outside and you get out of your truck and you just totally go down and then messing with those straps. I and mean, those straps are pretty dangerous if they come loose or you got all that tension or whatever. And it can... I just fell on my butt yesterday because of that. Yeah. <laughs> I was tying down and, and, uh, a strap ripped. And if you've ever had that happen to you, you know, the second it's coming because you hear it start ripping and that thing, well, you've got several hundred pounds of force on that. And then you got your winch bar and I'm not a small guy, you know, 220 jumping up on this winch bar and boom, the strap rips. Next thing you know, you're on the ground and, uh, and everything. I've never gotten hurt. And even if I have, I never filed a worker's comp <laughs> for it. But <laughs> I think a lot of guys like to do that. But, uh, well, now there's all these driving cameras. I mean, that really works for her and her job is if somebody can tell him, or if there's a vehicle accident involved, you know, a lot really of these, the only, it's really the only way to save yourself anymore. You well, can't, nobody can take each other's word. Yeah. A lot of these trucking companies require, yeah. you know, the video just to protect everybody. I mean, mm -hmm. it does protect everyone and it's nice for her trying to do her job and figure out what understand, actually happened. Yeah, understand you know? what actually happened. So, but yeah, back to, uh, back to me and Dylan um, going to truck shows and everything. That was just a highlight of, of my life every, you know, three years we'd go to the ATHS national show when it was here and getting to hang out with everybody. And then, I mean, having lunch with the, with Bill, your grandpa every once in a while. And, uh, it's just a cool, a cool way to grow up. Yeah, and Dylan, yeah. your grandpa is famous for hauling like a Christmas tree, like one of these big, huge Christmas trees across the country or something. I was going to ask you about this because I couldn't remember where this tree went. Goes to Kansas City, Kansas downtown City. Kansas City, Missouri. That is um, Dale's company, your uncle. Yep. And they do it every year. It gets donated. Well, I don't know if it's donated, uh, but it gets yeah chopped down in Oregon, and then. Uh, 
they chop off a bunch of limbs and they put it on a ram truck. And I don't know how they've been doing it in a long time. Yeah. Well, I know that my grandpa did it for a lot of years. Oh, yeah. I yeah. think it probably must have had something to do. Well, Lamet Industries, I would assume, donated the tree or probably. something like that. That probably. would make that would make. So the is most it sense. just like the city's tree? Yeah. So okay. you go to you go to downtown New York around Christmas time. There's a giant Christmas tree right in the middle of town, town square or wherever they put it. So Kansas City does the same thing. Downtown Kansas City, Missouri, has a huge tree. And uh, yeah, they'll cut they'll cut it down, they'll chop off a bunch of limbs, they'll put it all on this on this. Uh, they got a trailer, not necessarily sp- built just for this, but it's a step deck that stretches out, so it's uh, you know a hundred some feet long or however long it is, and then they bring it over there, and the mayor comes and they do an inaugur inauguratorial event. You know, it's it's usually right after Thanksgiving, and uh, it's on the news every year. And Dale, Dale's been known for having some of the nicest trucks in the country. And so it's pretty cool to see a Ram truck pulling in on the news, dropping this tree off. So then they reassemble it, put all the, nail all the nail and screw all the limbs back on and, and everything like that. So, and there's a big, sorry to keep interrupting, but there's a big sign on the side. My mom is in the sign business, so I'm pretty sure she made this, but it says Merry Christmas from Oregon, Merry Christmas, Kansas city from Oregon. And it's got the Ram logo on it and the logo that whatever company the tree came from and yeah that's pretty cool and then also our logo was built from Brian's from, mom yeah, yes from the podcast well. logo yeah.